So it's really good to be back with you. Thanks for uh, having me back. Um, that's always a win, isn't it? <laughs> you get to get do do number two. And I trust that in the week that um, that's passed since I was last with you last Tuesday, um, you've been encouraged, um, that you've been growing in your faith, uh, serving the Lord, never flagging in zeal, remembering that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, ministry is always a challenge and a great privilege, as is the Christian life. And uh, the thing that, that we're trying um, at St. James to, I suppose, do is build a culture of disciple-making disciples. Um, it's really not, not, no big idea from us. It's what Jesus wants us to be, Matthew 28. Um, but you realize that people are carrying great burdens um, and that the Lord is more than sufficient for us. Um, in those things. I'm involved, as I might have mentioned, with something called the Charles Simeon Trust, so we train preachers across Africa particularly, but worldwide. And um, just we had a meeting yesterday of our, our trust staff. Uh, so we were talking about people from diverse uh, India to Colombia and all over the place, the Middle East. Um, and just talking and listening to our staff, you realize that life, even for the Lord's people, can actually be very, very challenging. And I think it's that's how God uses us. You know, if, if we were, if life for us was always easy, I think it would be very hard for us to be able to empathize with or encourage others if we never struggled or battled along the way. Would you agree with that? Yeah. It's as we go through the fire, um, that the Lord enables us to walk with others who go through these challenging things. So that really brings me to today's um, theme. Remember we're doing 2 Timothy. I hope that you are um, having opportunities to read it for yourself. Um, it really will be very helpful to me if you keep just reading and rereading through 2 Timothy and, and framing your thinking, uh, letting God's Word, as it were, settle down into your heart and mind and, and do its work there. So we're looking at 2 Timothy and we're looking at it through the lens of authentic ministry. Trying to think about what does authentic ministry look like. And uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, you may remember that we spoke about authentic ministry is ministry shaped by eternity. And, uh, and the, the Bible reading tool that I shared with you was the principle of what I would call top and tail. Um, those who have little people in their lives know what I mean by top and tail because we're always dealing with kids at that level. But it's the beginning and the end of a letter. Um, so look at the introduction, look at the conclusion. That gives you something of the idea or, or something of the burden of the writer. And we saw with 2 Timothy that, that little additional thing in the greeting, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So I'm just recapping slightly because... Looking around the room, I think some of you here today perhaps weren't here last week and you may have heard the recording, um, in which case let me apologize up front. Um, but um, it may be that you haven't yet, and so just to keep you up to speed with where we are. So we saw in the introduction the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. We saw at the end of the letter, in many ways the context of the letter, is Paul in prison on death row, 
looking forward to the crown of righteousness that the Lord will give him. Um, finishing the race, finishing well. And we saw that throughout the letter there are these references to life and immortality. Mm. So the whole letter is shaped by this promise of eternal life. Now of course eternal life is something we receive the moment we trust in Christ. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, we are given life in the Son. Uh, the time is coming, and now He says, Jesus, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. And of course, He's not talking about the physically dead. Well, he is as well with Lazarus. He's talking about those who are spiritually dead. And He's saying that His gospel word, which is a creation word, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, His Paul, creation, has shone into our hearts the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, the God who created the world does recreation work through the gospel, through the word of God in our lives by the power of His Spirit. Just as the Spirit hovered over the waters and God's word brought the world into being, so the Holy Spirit works in the world and God brings life to the dead. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Um, those of you who are James Bond fans, um, which may or may not be you, uh, there's one of, the, one of the Daniel Craig movies where the... He's being interviewed or, you know, sort of going through a, a psychometric evaluation. And words are being mentioned. And uh, the question to him is hobby. And his answer is resurrection. And there's a sense in which Christians, if there's a word that we can use for ourselves, it's that word, resurrection, isn't it? We were dead, but are alive in Christ because of his life-giving power. So this letter... And of course, one day, thank you Lord, we will rise into the new heavens and new earth with eternal life. So this letter is shaped by this promise of life. And the reason why I think that's so important to take on board and why I started there is because of today's point. So our theme for today is that authentic ministry is cross-shaped. It's shaped by eternity, last week. Today, I want us to think about real ministry, authentic ministry, as cross-shaped. <clears throat> and in terms of upskilling you for reading your Bible for yourself, the tool that I want to share with you today, and it's a very familiar one for any kind of literature, really, is the, the tool of repetition. Now, I'm not going to repeat myself over and over. That's not what I mean, thankfully. Um, the repetition I'm talking about is... As we read through the Bible, and this is true for the Psalms, and it's certainly true for discourse, the sort of things we've got in the letters, what we need to keep our eye on is repeated words or repeated themes. Now, we did that a little bit with life, didn't we? We saw this theme of life running through the letter. I want to share with you three or four repeated words in 2 Timothy, and then try and lead us into this thinking around the authentic ministries cross-shaped. And I suppose the first and the most dominant word in this letter is the word suffering. So that might not um, <laughs> be such a warm and fuzzy thing, but there we are. 1.8, Paul to Timothy. Remember I said that this letter is full of 27 commands. They, they just pile on one another, actually. 1.8, therefore, uh, ESV again, English Standard Version, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, 
Yeah, it is. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now we'll come back to that a bit later on. Just notice the word suffering there. Chapter 1, verse 12, as Paul speaks about his own ministry. Verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. There it is again. Chapter 2, verse 3, Paul to Timothy, again instruction. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2.9 remember, well, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. 3.10 and 11 You, however, have followed my teaching, conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. See, he can't not mention it. Whenever he talks about his ministry, the word suffering is in there. Whenever he talks about Timothy's ministry, the word suffering is in there. Chapter 4, verse 5. Famous last words. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So as we think about this letter, this letter which is shaped by the vision of eternity, we realize that this is a letter that is shaped by the idea of suffering. Authentic ministry involves suffering. The second word that I want us to look at in terms of repetition is the word ashamed. Chapter 1, verse 8. It occurs three times in the letter, but they come at quite critical junctures. 1.8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Got it? 1.12. I am not ashamed. So Timothy, don't you be ashamed, because I am not ashamed. And then 2.15, which is the verse I think that Tim sort of sent me in a WhatsApp. Um, in terms of, of what he was in his mind when he invited me. This great verse in chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You see? So suffering is a key word through this letter. Suffering for Paul, suffering for Jesus, Actually, before that, suffering for Timothy. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. See, as you think about ministry, think suffering. As you think about ministry, make sure that you don't have to be ashamed. And don't be ashamed. Now, the thing to note at this point is the link between suffering and shame. Do you see it in 1.8? Perhaps that's the obvious place where it's most clear. Actually, um, I don't now, but if I was doodling this on a whiteboard for the training that we do with preachers, what I would do, and perhaps we can just do this as a little exercise, because I think it's, a, it's good in terms of equipping you for how to read the Bible for yourself, which is a key element of what we do. Uh, do you notice that in 1.8... We have a string of commands. And it's, do not be ashamed, 
but share in suffering for the gospel. Do you see that? Do not be ashamed. Share in suffering for the gospel. So it's a shame, suffering, gospel. Do not be ashamed. Share in suffering for the gospel. If you look at what Paul then says about himself in uh, verse, where is it? Um, 11 or 10 to 12, you notice how the order gets reversed? Let me, let me read from verse 10. Of which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, 1.10, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, of which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer, but I'm not ashamed. Do you see that? So, do not be ashamed, suffer for the gospel, for the gospel, says Paul, I suffer and I'm not ashamed. So you can see how Paul has structured this letter. Three commands and three statements which, which almost are like brackets. And in the middle is this life and immortality through Jesus Christ. So there's a, great, there's a link here. When Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed. See, who is the ashamed person? It's the person who refuses to suffer for the gospel. So when we see the word ashamed, we mustn't bring our understanding of what shame is. I mean, we've, we've all got shame. Well, certainly I only became a Christian in my mid-twenties, so I had a whole bag of shame that I dragged with me to the cross. Um, in my selfishness, my immorality, my drunkenness, my pride, my arrogance, my self-centeredness, and many other things that thankfully I can't remember anymore. But a whole bag of stuff which really made me almost too ashamed to come into God's presence. You know, when I was converted many years ago, now 1982 I think it was, um, in those days the, the understanding in the world was, was that God was good and that we were bad. And that we, we, you know, one, one felt, you felt too unworthy to come to God. And, and really what the gospel did for me was to tell me that I could come to God just as I was. With all my stuff. <laughs> and that Jesus could deal with it. I didn't have to clean my life up before I came to Christ. In fact, it was impossible to clean my life up before I came to Christ. I had to come to Christ and let Him sort me out. Today, of course, people think that we are good and God is bad. So God's in the in the God's on trial, isn't he? And and we in our arrogant hubris as human beings, whether we're right wing, left wing, or somewhere in the middle, uh, pass judgment on God. Oh well, I can't, I can't believe in a God who does this or who thinks that or has that. You know, we sit in judgment on God. It's C.S. Lewis's brilliant point from the sixties and seventies: God in the dock. But when we're thinking here about shame, we're not talking about that kind of shame. We're not talking about the shame that comes with our sins. Now. When Paul says to Timothy, do not be ashamed, he's not saying, well, you know, have a, have a positive view of yourself or, or um, you know, um, the whole sort of self-actualization thing that's knocking around today. What he's saying to him is, to, when he says do not be ashamed, he actually means don't be embarrassed. Sure. Don't be embarrassed about the gospel. And don't be embarrassed about Christ. 
And, and here's the extraordinary thing. Don't be, you see, look at verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. All of me is prisoner. So there's a link, isn't there, between not being ashamed and being willing to suffer. Now we'll come back to that in a moment. The other thing, I don't know where we are on at number four, I think, is to notice the link between the words ashamed and turn away. So 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, says Paul to Timothy. Now let me tell you how this plays out in, in 2 Timothy. Look at 1.15. You see how, how Paul, some of the statements that Paul makes now start making sense. Look at 1.15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. How about that? So if, you, <laughs> if you're feeling slightly miserable about yourself today, you know, life's been hard, it's been a hard week, people have given you a hard time, uh, people that you, you've trusted have sort of let you down a bit, or, you know, it hasn't been a great week for you, perhaps. Just remember this, Paul says, everyone in Asia has turned away from me. This is Paul who planted the church in Ephesus. And who for three years in the lecture room of Tyrannus basically preached the gospel like Calvin did every day over lunch. And, and evangelized the whole of Asia Minor from Ephesus. It's a, it's a, that's a pretty impressive ministry, isn't it? Now he's in jail... And none of the people in Asia who owe him their salvation are standing with him. I always have to remind myself that actually when I think life is hard, I haven't got a clue. He's in prison, he's on death row, everyone in Asia has turned away. You see, what is the point? They've been ashamed of Paul the prisoner. Do not be ashamed of the Lord. All of me is prisoner. And by the way, that is the clue to understanding Demas. Chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Dear old Demas gets quite a bad press, doesn't he? Mm. Most people that I know, or certainly most writers that I've read, basically say, oh, Demas gave up the Christian faith. I don't think he did. I think he gave up Christian ministry. Because he was ashamed of the suffering that it brought. He chose easy life rather than the cross in his ministry. I think he abandoned Paul. But here's the rub. 1.8. Do not be ashamed of Christ or of me as prisoner. What's the problem in all of this? That if you become ashamed of Paul and his gospel, the danger is we may well become ashamed of Christ. Because how do we know Christ? Through the gospel. Yeah? That's how we know Christ. Through the apostolic gospel. However we came to faith in Jesus, the way we know Jesus Christ is through the apostolic gospel. The gospels written and the letters written. And if we turn away from Paul is saying, you turn away from me and my gospel. In Romans 16, he actually calls it my gospel. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. In Romans chapter 1, he's called it God's gospel. 
But God's gospel and his gospel are the same gospel. So here's the thing. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, of the gospel of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join in suffering. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me or my words, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory in the holy angels. That's quite a statement, isn't it? And it's not just ashamed of Christ, notice. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words. See, everybody, gee, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lots of people will say amen to that. What they don't like is that no one comes to the Father except by me. It's the second bit. It's the tail, the sting in the tail of Jesus' words. So, ministry shaped by suffering because that's the path of Christ glory then the cross now discipleship is not Jesus went to the cross so that I can go to glory now if anyone wants to come after me says Jesus let them take up their cross deny themselves follow me Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, the Christian life is cross-shaped, not resurrection-shaped. Now you might just want to store that in your head and think about that. And I'll come back to it in a moment. It's not that there's no resurrection. Remember what I said at the beginning? We, have, we believe in resurrection. But can I say to you, as Christians, we are not shaped by life before death. We are shaped by death before life. So this is my ongoing debate with my good friends at Common Ground. You know, we believe in life before death. I said, brothers, no, 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 no. Put it up. We believe in death before life. And they do, actually. We believe in death before life. Because the Christian life is the road to death and then life. And the Christian ministry is the path of death and then life. There is life. There's a crown of righteousness. There's a new heavens and a new earth. But it ain't now. Do not be ashamed. Share in suffering. Now, let me, <laughs> I'll just let that trickle down into your mind. Because <laughs> it's quite a thing, isn't it? Talk about countercultural and subversive. Uh, I have wonderful young staff at St. James, some of whom think they're quite radical. And my dear friend Cameron Shabangu, who runs the message, I okay, not the message, uh, that's Sandile, as opposed to the message trust, but um, runs Red Post Church up at UCT. He's a, he's a wonderful young man, um, Cameron, and uh, he and I meet every week. When he joined our staff to go and plant up at the campus, he sat down with me. Um, Cameron is Swati, he's married to Leletu, who's also, uh, but he's Zulu speaking because he grew up in Jersey. So he said to me, you need to understand, I'm a radical Zulu. I said, oh really? That's interesting. Whatever that is. 
So I said to him, Cameron, I promise you something. No matter how radical you are, the Bible's going to out-radical you, brother. If you, you think you're radical, trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you let God's Word really loose, you will be astonished at how radical it is. So how radical is this? That real ministry is choosing death. The thing that always astonished me was, I, I might have said this here, I was somewhere else the other day. The thing that always astonished me was ISIS's appeal for young people. Did I say that last week? Yes, yes, yes. And it's because it gave them something to die for. And what I'm saying to you is the cross of the gospel is giving you something to die for. Well, I'm not saying it. Paul's saying it. What I say is irrelevant, actually. Now, what was the problem? Remember, so we've seen repetition. Suffering, the shame, turn away. All those ideals. And I'm saying, basically, that Christian ministry is cross-shaped ministry. Now, you know this. It's not like you don't know this. I'm just reminding you of it. So that when you get weary or burdened or feel sorry for yourself, you can just remember this. You're called to die. That's what you're called to do. Now, the context of this letter is Paul in prison. We saw that. He's writing to Timothy, who's not the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's a kind of an apostolic delegate, um, a representative who's traveling around doing Paul's work while Paul's in prison. There are elders in the church in Ephesus. We know that because of one Timothy. And Timothy's job was to appoint ministers and leaders in the churches. So Paul's writing to Timothy. And he's actually asking Timothy to come to him as soon as possible and bring parchments and a cloak because it's almost winter. But in 1 Timothy, he spoke about the threat of what was happening in, Tim in, in Ephesus, you know, Straighten things out, Timothy. And um, he talks in, in 1 Timothy about some troublemakers. Um, amongst whom are, let me just find them for you, Hymenaeus, uh, chapter 1, verse 20 of 1 Timothy. Amongst whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we're not going to go into that. I think he basically means he's publicly exposed them as false teachers. And told, you know, told the church to kick him out. And over to Satan, that means nothing's excommunicated. Have a look at uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 17. Well, let me read from verse 16. 2 Timothy says, Avoid irreverent babble. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> Just avoid people to talk rubbish. In the pulpit. Because this is about teaching. This is not about people who talk rubbish in general. This is about avoid rubbish preachers. People whose words are babble. In, chapter, in 1 Timothy, he warns about this. You know, they make great pronouncements. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, so avoid irreverent babble. It will only lead people into more and more ungodliness. There's nothing that produces ungodliness more quickly than when the gospel is taken out of the pulpit. And replaced with just human talk. Or in any, I mean, I say pulpit, but I mean in any space. 
when those whose job it is to explain the Bible or to disciple or to teach the word put their own babble on the table. The fruit of that is ungodliness. Human babble always leads to ungodliness. The only thing that changes lives is God's word. So avoid irreverent babble because it only leads to ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. So false teaching spreads. Remember Paul, Ephesus, Acts 20. After I go, savage wolves will come. And from among your own souls, people will rise up, drawing away disciples after them. If you see a minister who has a following, run a hundred miles. Yeah? We don't want men or women to have followings. We want Christ to be followed. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And no one follows servants. Alright? So if you want to think about leadership, here's a little tip. Don't lead your ministry. Don't lead people. Lead yourself. And serve people. Mm. We are not like the Gentiles who lord it over one another and have titles and positions and all sorts of things. We lead ourselves, but we serve people. We don't want to follow him. We want people to follow Christ, don't we? Isn't that right? I keep saying to the congregation at St. James, if I run your life, I'll wreck it. <laughs> but if Jesus runs your life, he will make you whole. Yeah? But that's not what false teachers do, do they? They build a following. They build fans. So mind what you tweet. Don't be bothered about having followers. Make Christ our followers. George Whitfield once said, May the name of Whitfield perish. In the name of Christ lost forever. And you know what we did? We named a theological college after Whitfield. How stupid is that? <laughs> but that's our stuff. So here we are with Hymenaeus. And there's Hymenaeus. He's back again. Paul kicked him out. And a number of years later, now Paul's in prison. And Hymenaeus says, right, this is my opportunity. So here he is again. This is not a different Hymenaeus. This is the same one. And what is the problem with Hymenaeus? The problem is... So, are you strapped in? Have you got your seatbelt on? <laughs> what did Hymenaeus preach? Look in the text and tell me. Chapter 2, verse 18. Isn't that extraordinary? He preached resurrection. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? In other words, Hymenaeus preached heaven now. The fullness now. The blessing of resurrection now. And therefore, a Christian life marked out by power now. Now, Paul believes in power, doesn't he? Yes? Yes. 
Well, yes. But look at chapter 1, verse 8. Notice the difference between Timothy and Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus is preaching a resurrection. It's what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. Which is a false theology. Rather than the theology of the cross. So as he was dealing with medieval Catholicism, Luther's criticism of medieval Catholicism was that it was a theology of glory. Position, power, presence in the world, grandeur, greatness, big talk, people with pointy hats, big buildings with spires, glory now. You can almost hear that, no? I believe in glory now. That was Hymenaeus. I'm a glory man. And Jesus wants glory for you, brother. And resurrection power right now for you. And if you are sick or suffering or struggling, you have not enough faith. Because we believe in glory. You want power? You should ask for power. Look at chapter 1 verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God. You want power, ask God for power to suffer. That's authentic ministry. Power to not be ashamed of the cross. It's quite a thing, isn't it? Demas wanted power now. But not power to suffer. Power for glory. Not real Christianity, people. And it's certainly not Christian ministry. Which, by the way, is the clue to that funny little hymn in the middle of, or piece of poetry, in the middle of chapter 2. Have you ever wondered about this? Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure, there it is again, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, I endure so that others may obtain the salvation that is in Christ which comes with glory. Well, what does the theology of glory look like then according to Paul? Well, here it is. Can you see it in verse 11? This is a funny little trustworthy saying. It's extraordinary, isn't it? If we die with Him, we will live with Him. Not we live with Him now so that He died and we don't have to die. That's the prosperity gospel. We believe in the adversity gospel. If we die now with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure now, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, that is, are ashamed of Him, then He will be ashamed of us. And if your faith is weak, don't worry. Because He's faithful. It's not about how much faith you have, brother or sister. It's about where your faith is put. Small faith in the big Christ is a whole lot better than a whole bucket load of faith in nothing. Or worse, in yourself. Now, just to finish off, <laughs> let me talk to you about what that looks like in practice. If ministry is cross-shaped, 
And if ministry is about following Jesus and following Paul on this road, you know, we, when we think about that, we can think about it in big terms. We can think about it in martyrdom terms or, you know, whatever. And, and there are people who lay down their life for the gospel, literally still to this very day. But it, it's, got much, it's got a much more um, mundane, everyday grounding, which I think is perhaps of most relevance for us. We, you may be called to die for Jesus, but probably not today. Not here, in this context, at the moment. But this is what it looks like for you. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Yeah? Paul, to Timothy the minister. Now what does that mean? What does cross-shaped ministry mean in everyday life for the word worker, for the gospel worker, for you and for me? Verse 4. Don't get caught up in civilian affairs. Now he doesn't mean to say you shouldn't pay your mortgage or you know, pay your bills or don't do that. Don't sponge your people. Uh, you know, be responsible. He's not talking about that. He's talking about being governed by the things of this life. Ruled by them. Foxes of holes, birds of their own nest, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head, you know. Master, tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Give me justice. Jesus says, I'm not here to bring you justice, friend. Follow me. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about justice. Don't misunderstand me. God cares a great deal about justice. But it's don't get hooked up in the world and its stuff. If you can't, you see, this is where eternity comes in, doesn't it? If we can't have open hands to the world and make sacrifices, then we're in the wrong, we're doing the wrong thing. But this is what it looks like for the minister, for the word worker. If you're going to, you know, so, so here are the models, aren't there, of ministry. The athlete, the hard-working farmer, and the soldier. Those are the images. At war. Now, I'm a farmer. I come from a farming family. Our family's been farming in the Free State forever. I had the privilege of meet, meeting King, King Letzer uh, in Lesotho in 2007. We had a wonderful talk. He's the most gracious man. And, and he used my Sutu name, which is Tabu. He said to me, Tabu, he said, basically our family have been stealing cattle from one another for hundreds of years. I said, Your Majesty, quite right. You came, stole our cattle, we went back, took ours back, took yours. It was just this ongoing thing. And it was the most extraordinary conversation with him. Because here is a man who is the king of Lesotho. And who understands real life. It was such an encouragement. Why? Because he knows what it is to work the land and to farm and to battle and to struggle against the enemy. Paul says, ministry is like being a farmer. You sow the word, you work hard, you water it, and then what can you do? The answer is, nada. You have to wait. Patience. You can't dig up the seed and see is it growing. You just got to trust the Lord and say, okay. So, wait. Patience. Stick to the rules. But this one I love. 
<laughs> Back to 2.15. Do you best to present yourself to God as one approved? Someone who's not ashamed. Yeah? For most of us, what does this mean? You tell me, verse 15. The approved worker and the unashamed workman is somebody who... And what does that take? What's the word? Do your best to present yourself to God approved a... Worker. So can I tell you that ministry is not white collar work. The picture that Paul uses is of the laborer. The worker. Not the guy leaning on his spade <laughs> next to the road while there's 40 people leaning on rakes and spades while someone is supervising and no one's doing anything. He's talking about the guy who works, who labors, digs, carries rocks, builds. Ministry is blue-collar work. God help us if it becomes a snob job. It's blue-collar work, if I can use that phrase. It's a terrible phrase, actually. But it's, it's, it's proper work. And handling the Bible is proper work. Mm. So I have preached through 2 Timothy, I don't know how many times. I throw my notes away every time. In coming to you, am I, apart from everything else I've been doing, I have, I just need to rock up here and just, you know, unpack the top drawer. I have put hours into preparing what I wanted to say to you today. Because that's what ministry is. My dear beloved friend Dick Lucas is now 96. He used to run preaching conferences. And uh, people did, we did a little presentation, you know, five minute presentation. And one of the guys gave a presentation, and I must be honest with you, it wasn't very good. He didn't rightly handle the word. And uh, he, he got up and he apologized to Dick. He said, Dick, I'm so sorry. I didn't pray hard enough. Quick as a flash. Dick said to him, no, brother, you didn't work hard enough. So good, isn't it? Work at the Word. Personally. In your reading. In your thinking. Work at the Word. For us, cross-shaped ministry is hard work ministry by the power of God. Because we sure can't do it on our own, can we? Mm. 